The Old Testament reading for today comes from Jeremiah chapter 50. If you would like to turn there, Jeremiah chapter 50, it will also be up on the screen. Uh, And then the sermon text today is going to be Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. I had hoped to get through all of it, but we're just going to look at the first six verses today. So Jeremiah chapter 50, to begin with, would you hear now God's holy and inspired word? Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 1. The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans, by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and proclaim, set up a banner and proclaim, conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken, Bel is put to shame, Merodach is dismayed, her images are put to shame, her idols are dismayed. For out of the north a nation has come up against her, which shall make her land a desolation, and none shall dwell in it. Both man and beast shall flee away. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep, God says. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. All who found them have devoured them, and their enemies have said, We are not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord, their habitation of righteousness, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Flee from the midst of Babylon, the Lord says. And go out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be as, a male, as male goats before the flock. For behold, I am stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her, and there she shall be taken. Their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea shall be plundered. All who plunder her shall be sated, declares the Lord." Though you rejoice, though you exalt, O plunderers of my heritage, though you frolic like a heifer in the pasture, and nay, like stallions, your mother shall be utterly ashamed, and she who bore you shall be disgraced. Behold, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but shall be in utter desolation. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled and hiss because of all her wounds. Set yourselves in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her. Spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Raise a shout against her all around. She has surrendered. Her bulwarks have fallen. Her walls have thrown down. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her. Do to her as she has done. Cut off from Babylon the sower and the one who handles the sickle in time of harvest. Because of the sword and the oppressor, everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First the king of Assyria devoured him. And now at last Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon has gnawed his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land, as I punished the king of Assyria. I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan, and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. 
In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none, and sin in Judah, and none shall be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. Jeremiah 50, verses 1 through 20. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 17 and look at verses 1 through 6. Uh, You will notice that this judgment of Babylon, which we just read about in the prophet Jeremiah, uh, stands behind some of what is said herein in Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So far the reading of God's holy word. We do pray that the Lord would bless also the preaching of it and our application of it to our lives as well. And so brothers and sisters, I do want to say this at the outset, that as we journey deeper into our study of the book of Revelation, it is very important for us to remember uh, that this book was originally written not to us, but to seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century AD. Have you forgotten about that now that we're this deep into the book of Revelation? Uh, Specifically, this book was addressed to the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and also Laodicea. Remember that these churches, being seven in number, they do represent, in a way, all churches. There are struggles uh, being common to all. Uh, But we must remember that these were actual churches filled with with actual people alive in the first, first century A.D., and that the book of Revelation was first given to them. Uh, Christ addressed each of these churches individually in seven letters um, found in chapters 2 and 3 of of the book of Revelation. You remember those letters. They seem like a very long time ago, don't they? And remember that he rebuked most of those churches for their weaknesses, and he did encourage and, and exhort all of them. And these churches, we found, struggled with many things. Some were persecuted. Others were plagued by false teaching. Some were especially tempted by the seductiveness of the world in in which they lived. Others had, in their prosperity, grown complacent in their love for God and for one another. And we could list many more struggles than these. Uh, But do remember those letters to the seven churches and remember the way that each of those churches uh, was in some respect tempted and tried. And I mention those letters to the seven churches here at this point in our study of the book of Revelation so that we might recognize how the rest of the book of Revelation has connected to them. Uh, Though the visions of chapters 4 and following 
do differ rather significantly in style. We have noticed that, haven't we? I mean, it almost feels as if it were two different studies, two separate studies in regard to uh, the, the style of the book, the letters to the seven churches, and then the visions of chapters four and following. And so though they do differ significantly in style, we must remember that they are not unrelated to those seven letters, but ultimately give an answer to them in the letters to the churches, those churches were exhorted to stay true to Christ at all costs, to not waver in their devotion to Christ. The churches were commanded to persevere in Christ. They were encouraged to overcome uh, the trials and tribulations and temptations of the world in order to continue on in Christ. But what I want for you to recognize is how the visions of chapters 4 and following complement the letters to those churches as they provide an answer to the inevitable question, why? Or is it worth it? And so here these churches gather for worship and they receive this letter from the hand of John as he is there exiled on the island of Patmos. And they read it and they are exhorted strongly to persevere in Christ and to bear up under, under trials and tribulations and to endure even persecution to death uh, for the sake of Christ. And, and undoubtedly, even if none of the members dared say it out loud, they were thinking it inwardly. Why? Is it really worth it to follow Christ in this world and to persevere in Him even if it means death for me? Uh, why bear up under this suffering in the name of Christ. Why abstain from the pleasures of this world that I see all about me? Is it worth it? Now, the visions of chapters 4 and following say to the Christ follower, it is worth it. And these visions say it by revealing how things truly are and how they will be. That is what the book of Revelation reveals. It reveals how things really are now, the true nature of things, and also how they will be at the end of, of the age. And with that information, the Christians in those seven churches, and even we today, are able to say, it is worth it to follow Christ. It is worth it to walk with Him faithfully in this world, and to bear up under trials and tribulations, and to suffer uh, for His namesake. It is worth it to abstain from the pleasures of this world that do tempt us to compromise in our devotion to Christ because this is how things truly are and this is how things will truly be at the end of time. The book of Revelation reveals how things really are despite appearances. Though things might appear to be otherwise, the truth is that God is enthroned in heaven and he is worshipped there, being radiant in glory and awesome in power. And Christ is there at the Father's right hand. These are sovereign over all. Nothing happens in this world apart from their decree. God and Christ know those who belong to him. They promise to keep them and will judge all who oppose them, partially now and fully in the end. To belong to Christ, to have his seal placed upon you, means life eternal. But to belong to the evil one, that is to have his mark stamped on you, means everlasting damnation. And the world... Christ followers will indeed have tribulation. They will be pursued by the dragon. They will come under the assault of the beast from the sea, that is, political powers that persecute. They will feel the pressure of the beast from the land, that is, false prophets who serve the beast and the dragon. But God will keep those who are his and judge all 
who oppose him in the end. These are some of the truths that have been communicated to us via the visions shown to John as described in Revelation chapters 4 through 16. Do you see how the visions then do relate to those letters to the seven churches? In the letters to the seven churches, Christians are urged to persevere and to overcome. The visions say, here is why. It is because this is the way things are now, and this is the way things will be at the end of time. Now here in chapter 17, we come to a brand new vision. And in it, we are introduced to a brand new character. Uh, She is called the harlot or the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, Revelation 17.1. And this new character, as we will see, symbolizes the seductiveness of the world. She represents the seductiveness of the great cities of the world, cities that are filled to the brim and overflowing with money and with sinful pleasures and with the promise of power and fame. She represents worldliness in all of its seductive power. Here the Christian is warned then to see the seductiveness of the cultures of the world for what it is. Uh, The world's beauty, uh, though impressive and though not denied here in this text, is only skin deep. Uh, That is what this vision reveals to us. The world's beauty is only skin deep, though the world might appeal to us. In truth, she is rotten to the core. Her way leads only to death. Her end is ultimately destruction. Uh, That is what this new character and this new vision found here in Revelation chapter 17 ultimately reveals. Uh, The harlot of Revelation 17 was an answer to those in the seven churches whose appetites and whose affections were drawn to the seductiveness of Rome. That is what this is an answer to. There were some within those seven churches who, who looked at Rome and all of its power and all of its wealth and all of its glitz and glamour and all of the pleasures found within it. And there were some within those seven churches who looked upon all of that and said, that is very appealing to me. And they were tempted then in their devotion to Christ. They were tempted to waver in it and to chase after those worldly Things. Rome was the dominant world power in that day. And here the church was existing right in the midst of it. Uh, remember that there were some in the church of Thyatira, for example, who loved that woman Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess and taught and seduced Christ's servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. That was a problem within the the church of Thyatira. There were some within that church who were being seduced by uh, this prophetess whose name was Jezebel. They were being lured away from their devotion to Christ. And they were tempted to go after worldly and sinful things instead. And there were some in Pergamum who held to the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. The church in Laodicea, remember, had been lulled into a state of complacency by her prosperity. And what did the church in Laodicea say except, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing 
But they did not realize that they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you remember those churches, brothers and sisters, and the ways in which they were being tempted to abandon Christ and to go after evil things? Uh, To those enamored with the sinful pleasures and luxuries of the world, the book of Revelation now presents the harlot of chapter 17. Her beauty and appeal is not denied, but Christians are warned not to chase after her, for though she promises pleasure forevermore, what we see here is that she leads only to death. Her end is destruction. In verses 1 and 2, Uh, The harlot is introduced to us. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And so here she is introduced to us. And it was one of the angels who had the seven bowls that revealed the harlot to John. It should be recognized that this vision concerning the harlot provides us with another vantage point on what bulls 6 and 7 revealed, namely the gathering of the kings of the earth for judgment and the judgment of Babylon, which stands for the great cities of the world. And so that was revealed to us in bulls numbers 6 and 7, But now here we have another vantage point on that. And in particular, we are given a a picture of the the, the seductiveness of the world so that we might see it for what it truly is. Uh, Notice that though this is the first time the harlot has been mentioned in the book of Revelation, she is described as judged as soon as she is introduced. I think that is interesting. It is so that we might not be carried away at all by her seductiveness, but so that we might understand right away uh, that her way leads only to death and destruction. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, the angel says. The harlot is said to be seated on many waters. Her being seated indicates her power and authority over the people of the earth and over the beast. When Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, it symbolizes his authority, does it not? And so here the the, the harlot is described as being seated on many waters. When it is said that she is seated on many waters, it is to remind us of Jeremiah 51, a chapter just following the one that we read from the Old Testament at the beginning of the sermon, where God did promise to judge Babylon, again saying, O you who dwell by many waters, rich in treasure, your end has come, the thread of your life is cut. Babylon was, was rich in part due to her close proximity both to the Tigris and Euphrates River, and therefore she was very successful in trade. And so you're beginning to understand the image here, how this harlot is portrayed in in language that is reminiscent of ancient Babylon. We are told that it is with the harlot that the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now it's important to to recognize that it would be a mistake to think that this harlot represents only uh, the temptation of sexual sin. It's true she is called a harlot or a prostitute, and it is also true that the sin of sexual immorality is mentioned again and again throughout this passage, Uh, but we should remember that, that harlotry 
or sexual immorality or the sin of adultery is often used within the pages of of Holy Scripture as a metaphor for spiritual idolatry. And so that idolaters are often called adulterers, sexually immoral people, uh, in order to indicate their unfaithfulness to God. Uh, For example, in Jeremiah chapter 3, God confronts Israel for her idolatry, that is for her false worship, for her unfaithfulness to the covenant that she entered into with God. And he confronts her this way, saying, You have played the whore with many lovers, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights, the place where idolatry was committed, and see, where have you not been ravished? By the wayside, you have sat awaiting lovers. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Uh, This is the way that the Lord himself speaks to Old Covenant Israel, not only concerning her sexual sin, but concerning her idolatry. She had been unfaithful to the God with whom uh, she had entered into covenant with and and harlotry and the sin of sexual immorality and adultery serve as metaphors for spiritual idolatry because the two things share some similarities. Uh, The sin of adultery is committed when a husband or wife goes off to join themselves to another, thus violating the marriage covenant. The husband belongs to the wife and the wife to the husband and it's a grave sin when that union is broken. And so also is the sin of idolatry committed when a person abandons the worship of the one true God to worship one who is not God. Uh, The creature belongs to the creator. And the creator is to be worshipped and served by by the creature. And it is a grave sin when that union is severed. And so you can understand then why spiritual idolatry, that is false worship, is referred to as adultery and whoredom in the pages of Scripture time and time again. It serves as a kind of metaphor so that we might understand just how severe the sin of idolatry is so that we might feel it. It is a most grievous sin when the thing that should be given to God only is given to another, namely glory and honor and praise. Uh, The harlot of Revelation chapter 17 signifies all of the ways in which the world seduces men and women to abandon the, the true worship of the one true God and to worship something in his creation instead. That is what she symbolizes. So far, uh, John has only heard about the harlot, but in verses 3 through 6, he finally sees her. There we read, And he, that is the angel, carried me, that is John, away in the spirit into a wilderness. And he says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So what should we say about all of this and the vision that John saw concerning this woman? One, notice that John was in the spirit, which indicates that he was again receiving a prophetic vision. Two, notice that he was carried away into a wilderness. And we should remember that it was into the wilderness that the church fled while being pursued by the dragon there in Revelation chapter 12. Do you remember the image there? 
uh, the woman and her offspring fleeing into the wilderness place and the dragon pursuing after her. It was there in the wilderness that the church has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, Revelation 12, 6. And so you understand how these visions correspond to one another. Now, the, the church is portrayed as being nourished and protected in the wilderness place during the church age until the Lord returns. But now John is, taking out, is taken out into the wilderness and is shown a vision of this harlot. Many things may be signified by the fact that John was taken into the wilderness to see this harlot. And I think one of them is this. It's that the church will not be entirely immune from the harlot's seductive powers as she is protected and preserved in this wilderness place. So here we are being protected and preserved by God in this world, but we have to wrestle with the seductiveness of the world. It does tempt us as Christ's people as well. Another uh, significant thing may be that when Babylon is judged, which is what this woman represents, the once thriving city will be made desolate like a wilderness place. And and this is what Revelation chapter 18 describes. Uh, There an angel calls out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So do you see it that here in the book of Revelation, the city of Babylon is coming to the forefront And what does Babylon stand for except all of the great cities of the earth, cities filled with great wealth and with great power and with all sorts of glitz and glamour. And and there uh, the world is portrayed in this way, but Babylon will eventually fall. And her fall is described as this, the once flourishing city will become like a desolate place. And so here this woman, the harlot of Revelation 17, is out in the wilderness, I think signifying what it will be that she is about to become. She looks so good on the surface. She looks so appealing. And indeed, even Christians are tempted by her and all of her abominations. But she is going to become, in due time, a desolation, a wilderness place. John, uh, being carried away into the wilderness to see the harlot, uh, does prepare us to hear of her judgment unto desolation. In that place. Uh, Three, notice the apparel of the woman. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. And so we see that her dress is very extravagant. She represents the luxurious living and sinful seduction of the world. For notice that she is holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So she has in her hand a cup that is filled with a deadly and sinful concoction which she offers to the kings of the earth and also to the earth dwellers from which they do ultimately drink. In verse 5 we read, And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. On her forehead was written a name of mystery, we are told. The name will need to be interpreted for us because it is mysterious. 
Uh, the fact that is written on her forehead indicates that this name reveals her true character, her true identity. And what is her name? Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abomination. She symbolizes or stands for all of the earth's abominations, not just the abominations of ancient Babylon. It is symbolic. And what does the woman with the name represent? In verse 18, if you look down to the very bottom of the chapter, uh, the angel reveals it when he says to John, And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And so the harlot, as I said before, represents the seductiveness of the world. She represents the seductiveness of the great cities or cultures of the world, cities filled to the brim and overflowing with money and sinful pleasures and the promise of power and of fame. In verse 6 we read, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And so this woman, evidently, if she cannot seduce Christ's people, to go her way and to abandon Christ, she does then persecute them, even to the point of death. Uh, Clearly, the description of the woman of Revelation 17 is meant to be contrasted with the description of the bride of Christ, which we will find in Revelation chapter 21. Uh, I would like to jump ahead to Revelation chapter 21 for just a moment so that you might see how the description of this harlot is meant to be set alongside and compared with and contrasted with uh, the description of the bride of Christ, that is, the church, in Revelation chapter 21. Look at verse 9 of Revelation chapter 21. And notice how familiar the language is with the opening words of Revelation chapter 17. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. The same, isn't it? And he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you something. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit, uh, not to the wilderness this time, but to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most pure jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, so on and so forth. We won't go further here in this description, but for now I just want you to notice that the two women are contrasted with one another. There is the harlot of Revelation chapter 17 and there is the bride of Christ of Revelation chapter 21. And so Satan has his woman, doesn't he? And Christ has his. Satan's woman is the world. She is a harlot arrayed in extravagant apparel but filled with all manner of impurity who does seduce men and women to commit idolatry. Her way is death. Her end is destruction. Christ's woman, though, is the church called out of the world to serve him and to worship him faithfully. She too is arrayed gloriously, but she is pure. She's been made pure by the blood of her husband, by the washing of the water of the word. She is no harlot, but has remained true to her God and to Christ. Her end is everlasting glory. At the end of verse 6, John says, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. 
When John saw the harlot of Revelation chapter 17 out in the wilderness place there, we are told by him that he marveled greatly at what he saw. And commentators, they differ on how to interpret this. Uh, Some say that John himself was tempted strongly by the harlot. He felt strongly her, her allure and was tempted even perhaps to chase after her. Others refuse to say that John was in any way impressed by her. Uh, The answer seems to me to be somewhere in the middle of these two opinions. Uh, Though John probably was not swayed by her seductive powers, it seems that he did recognize the potential, though. As he looked upon her and as he beheld her beauty, he did understand the power that this woman had to seduce, and therefore he marveled greatly. When he saw her, then the angel said to him, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Revelation seventeen seven. Why do you marvel? Do not marvel at this woman. I will show you her true nature, her true character, and I will show you her end as well as the end of the beast who carries her. In other words, John, there's nothing to be impressed with here. I will show you who this woman truly is. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to stop here for today for the sake of time. And we will pick up with verse 7 next week where we will learn more about this harlot. And in particular, her relationship to the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. We've already been introduced to this beast, haven't we? Uh, This is the beast that did rise up out of the sea. Uh, some time ago in the book of Revelation. But we're going to learn more about uh, the harlot and how she is related to uh, this beast and all that that means uh, for us. But before we conclude, I I must ask this question. Does the world seduce you? That seems to be the question that Revelation 17 is demanding that we as Christ followers ask. Does the world seduce us? Does the seductiveness of the world land with you? Do you know what I mean by that? Does it stick? Does it, does it have a force upon you? Uh, are the sinful things of this world appealing to you? Do they appeal to you? Are you drawn to them as a follower of Christ? I think it is important for us to, to think clearly and, and biblically here. Uh, the things of this world are not inherently sinful. You do understand that, don't you? The the stuff of this world is not inherently sinful. For example, it is good and right for the Christian to enjoy the world, to marvel at its beauty and to give glory to God for it. It is right for the Christian to eat and drink with thanksgiving in his heart and to give glory to God in our eating and in our drinking. And it is right and good for the Christian to earn money, to provide for himself and for his family, and to give thanks to God for it. All of this is right and good. Indeed, all of the pleasures of this life can and should be enjoyed to the glory of God. They should be enjoyed in their proper place and to the glory of God. When we talk about the world and its sinfulness, we're not saying that the world is inherently evil or sinful, but we are saying that the world is misused by us as fallen creatures. Our tendency is towards idolatry. We tend to worship not the Creator, but His creation. 
The creation should be engaged by us and appreciated by us to the glory of God who made it. But in our idolatry, we do tend to worship the creation instead, and we do stop there. As you know, uh, the evil one does tempt us to approach the good things of this world in the wrong way. He tempts us to misuse the things of this world. He tempts us to make them ultimate and to use them only for our pleasure. Uh, This is the essence of idolatry, wherein men and women worship and serve the creation instead of the creator. They do not give glory to God. They do not seek to obey him. They do not live according to his will as he has revealed it in his word. Instead, they only seek to satisfy their sinful appetites and desires. In this way, we are tempted to go after the whore of Revelation chapter 17. And my question to you, friends, is this. Are your affections bent towards God or towards evil? Do you love the things that he has called lovely, or do you love this world more? Does the harlot seduce you? Are you drawn to her sinfully, or have you been renewed by Christ to the core, so that you crave that which is good and right and disdain that which is evil? As a Christian, it should be this. When we gaze upon the harlot of Revelation 17, she should be appalling to us. We should look upon her and see her for what she is immediately and say, no, thank you. Indeed, I'm much more in love with Christ, for I am his bride, for I am his bride. Paul says it this way in Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked. Before you were a Christian, before you were a Christ follower, you used to walk this way when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put, off, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Colossians 3, 5 through 10. And so, brothers and sisters, the, the old, natural, and sinful man is indeed su- seduced by the world. The sinfulness of the world certainly appeals to him. He, given his fallen nature, has an appetite for it. But in Christ, we have been made new. And in Christ, by his word and spirit, we are being renewed day by day. This is what we must pursue ultimately then, is transformation of the mind, the heart, and the will, so that we love from the core of us what God loves, and we hate from the core of us what he hates. So that when we look upon the harlot of Revelation 17, we marvel not, but look away with authentic and heartfelt disgust. One last question might remain, and I will spend very little time on this, but here it is. How do we get this heart transformation? How do we get it? How how do we... How do we become renewed like this so that to the very core of us we we desire that which God says is good and we uh, disdain that which God says is evil? And I think it is this. We must walk consistently in this world 
in the means of grace that God has given to us as his people. We must pursue him, uh, engaging with and utilizing the means of grace that he has provided for us. I think, brothers and sisters, I must exhort you to, to come and to worship faithfully and regularly on the Lord's Day Sabbath. You must do it. There are two things that we have to spend in this world, time and money. Have you noticed that? Time and money we can spend. And the Lord has set apart one day where we are to devote it to the worship of Him. It is to be a day distinct from all the other days. It's to be a day where we put aside our worldly employments and our worldly recreations. And we rest in Christ and we do gather together with His people and we do worship and serve Him. We are to devote not just a moment to Him but the day to Him as Christ followers. And in that way we do protect ourselves against the seductive of the world. Do you see it? How it has a way of anchoring us so that we work all week, not just to work, but in order to prepare ourselves to rest and to worship on the Sabbath day, which is the first day of the week since Christ's resurrection. And so we must engage in the means of grace. We must come to worship the Lord so that we might shield our hearts against the seductiveness of the world. How many people do go right on working right through the Lord's day when they should rest because they are obsessed with possessions, because they are in love with money, you see. But as Christ's people, we are to say, no, we will put it aside and we will rest in the Lord and we will worship him as we sojourn in this world as his people. We're to be attentive to to God's word. We're to listen to it attentively. We're to read it. We're to seek to obey it. God's word should have a a transformational impact upon us to the core. We must think about God's word deeply. We should give cheerfully to the Lord. This is another thing that we can spend our money. And the one who is in love with this world and in love with money holds on to it so tightly saying, I will never let it go because it is my God. But the Christian is to say, I will give cheerfully unto the Lord so that his kingdom might be furthered in this world. We are to pray, brothers and sisters. We are to even pray and fast while we pray, denying the flesh, denying the impulses of it, and and learning to bring our body into subjection to obey God in Christ and to obey not its impulses. We're to pray. And how are we to pray? We are to pray the Lord's Prayer. We are to address our God as Father, and He is in heaven. We are to pray above all else that His name be glorified, and that God would make it our desire to glorify Him above all else. We are to pray for the furtherance of His kingdom in this world. Why are we here? To lay a hold of the world and to make this our home? No, we are here that Christ's kingdom might be furthered in it, and that His kingdom might come in fullness one day. We're to pray that God's kingdom would be furthered. We're to pray also that his will would be done. And when we pray that his will would be done by us, we are saying, God, make us able and make us willing to keep your law. Do it within us, Lord. Change us to the very core of our being so that your law is written upon our hearts and so that we do live obedience to you in this world so that we are not drawn away by the seductiveness of it. We're to pray for our daily needs with thanksgiving. Lord, give us what we need today. We're to not abstain from the things of this world necessarily, but we're to engage with them rightly with thanksgiving and to the glory of God. We're to pray for the forgiveness of sins. We're to pray that the Lord would keep us from temptation always. And brothers and sisters, in all of this, we should give thanks to God for Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Because even though we are so bent out of shape, though our appetites are so misdirected, though we are indeed so drawn to sin and away from God and so easily derailed, Christ Jesus has died for us. He has paid for our sins by burying them in his body on that tree. And so we must give thanks to him, trusting always in him for our salvation. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we do thank you for uh, Revelation chapter 17 and the image of this harlot there. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for the question that it presses to us. Does she seduce us? Lord, may it, be, may it never be so of us. Uh, Lord, truly, may you be the most appealing thing to us above all else. Uh, may your law be a delight to us. May obedience to your word uh, be our ultimate aim, our ultimate goal. Lord, I do pray that your Holy Spirit would take the word of God and transform us to the core. Keep us from evil, Lord, day by day, so that we might belong only to you, faithful to you, and to the covenant that you have made with us in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.